The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. My name is Terry. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get to share the scripture this morning with us. And um, I want to let you know right off the bat that um, uh, half of the bulletin insert that you have on that yellow insert, only half of it you'll need to look at. Midway through this week, I realized I've just got way too much to say in this text, and we wanted to really today begin to introduce the theme of the image of God, and so we're going to be looking at uh, really primarily the scripture that uh, talks about that as an introduction. Last week, I suggested to you that the picture of, that God gives us of the paradise in the Garden of Eden is not just a beautiful farm, but an actual sanctuary. And that God's glory was reflected in that sanctuary in everything that he made, crowning it with with humans, you and I, the people that God's made in his image. And that is going to be the theme of our next six weeks, is the image of God. What does it mean, according to Genesis 1 and 2 and the rest of Scripture? Eden was, I suggest to you, the first temple of God where he took his rest. He, he went in on, on day seven after working for six days, and he, he took his rest. And, and we noticed that in day seven, there was no evening and morning, the seventh day, there, that day seven continues. God is still taking his rest. He's still on his throne. And we talked about last week the fact that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, there are, are two little Hebrew words, tohu and wabohu, and that these were keys to unlocking the first three and the second three days of creation. Days one to three, tohu, it was without form and void, without form, but God formed in those first days, one to three, he formed the earth. And then there's bohu, this without form and void, in the days four to six, God, God filled it. So from being uninhabited to being inhabited, and, and God filled the earth and the world with his glory and his creation. And when we continue in the scriptures and look at the creation of humans, you and I, men and women, we realize that that's exactly the same formula, that God formed Adam from the dust of the earth, and then he filled him. He breathed in him. Genesis 2, 7 says, he breathed into him, ruah, the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Incredible, incredible event in history. God breathed into him, and man became a living soul. And this is what we're going to be looking at, is what is it that, what is it that humans are? How is it that it differs from what God has done? That God is forming and shaping, and even after sin has come and marred the image of God, we see that God takes us as clay, puts us back on the potter's wheel, and shapes us into his image over and over again. That's God's agenda with you. You might have other thoughts for your plans for your life. God's agenda is to reshape you into the image of Jesus Christ. And so today as we look at it, we believe, as the Scripture teaches in 2 Corinthians, we have this treasure in jars of clay, and God does too. And so if you would take your Bibles and turn, I would like to look at a couple of Scriptures with you. And uh, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1 and just look at a few verses. The, in, the in to- total part of 
the scripture that talks about how we are stewards over God's creation. We're going to save that for next week, but today we're going to be introducing the image of God. So would you stand with me to hear God's word? Genesis chapter 1, we'll begin in verse 24 and go to verse 27. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 8. The book of Psalm chapter 8 and in verse 1 We read David's words, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established praise because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man? that you should care. May God bless his word. You may be seated. Probably one of the most duplicated paintings of all time is the fresco by Michelangelo found in the Sistine Chapel, in the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, in the center of the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican in Rome. And uh, it, is, it is probably, I read this past week that the only painting more duplicated than this painting is the Mona Lisa. This, this painting has gone around the world to imitate and to describe. Apparently, Michelangelo took four years to complete the Sistine Chapel ceiling. And in the center panels, nine panels of the Sistine Chapel, we can see the whole story of creation from Adam to Noah. Adam to Noah, Genesis 1 to 6. In the center panels, and in the very center of the center panels is the creation of Adam painting by Michelangelo. And I've covered up some of them just so that it's uh, okay. I was hoping that this text box wouldn't move when we put it on the big screen. (laughs) We're good. The imago Dei is the Latin term for image of God. As we read in the scripture, God created man in his image. Male and female, he created them. And and this this incredible painting of Michelangelo's in the Sistine Chapel, I just wonder what it was that he was thinking as he he painted this elderly father, white-bearded God that is reaching out his finger and the receiving finger of Adam reaching out to God to receive this life-giving breath of God. This is an incredible 
painting. I wonder what kind of study Michelangelo did. We all have in our minds images of creation. How is it that God took dust, clay, and formed humans? How is it that God took a rib from Adam to form Eve? How is it that he breathed into their lungs in such a way that his spirit caused them to have a soul, unlike all the rest of the animal world? How is it that the image of God was defiled by sin, by the choices of Adam and Eve, and how is it that that sin was passed on to us and that the image of God that was stamped upon every human, every one of us, is also defiled? What is lost and what is left? That's the question. What is man, as David said? We, can't, we, we have to answer that question. We have to ask the question. We have to wrestle with answering. Who are we? And so God's Word answers these questions. And I want to proceed this morning by, first of all, answering this from looking at the two worldviews that we've been talking about for the last few weeks. And these two worldviews result in two views predominantly of who humans are. And friends, you just need to understand that you're going to lean to one camp or the other. And it, this is a huge decision you need to make. This is a huge thing that you will, you will disagree with, maybe with the person you sit beside every day or the, the person you work with or go to school with. You have to decide which human am I going to follow? Which, which is it that I believe in in terms of origin? I appreciate the work of Kevin DeYoung in, in summarizing the two views of humans that exist today. He says, according to the world, we are here by chance. We are free to create our own selves. We are basically good at heart. We are ethically excusable, not accountable. And we are destined for either a happy heaven or a blessed extinction, annihilation. That is, that is the predominant view of what the world sees humans to be. And the scriptures teach us that we are here by design, a creator God, that we are created to reflect God's image that we are fundamentally flawed, not the image, but the, the fundamental flaw that the image has now been marred and distorted and twisted, that we are morally culpable, accountable to the designer and creator of us. And we are destined to worship God in heaven or face his just wrath in hell. Now, I share these two things with you to remind us that when we talk about theories of our origin, whether it's the Big Bang versus the creation story in Genesis, they are built on the foundations of worldviews that are worlds apart. One author writes, at issue, the worldview claim that, the life, that life is the product of impersonal forces versus the claim that life was designed by an intelligent agent is the biggest question. John Walton John Walton says this, being made in the image of God confers on us dignity 
entrusts us with responsibility and implants in us a certain potential, namely the capacity to mirror our Creator. You see, every human life is precious and valuable beyond estimation. The Bible teaches us that every human life is precious to God. We, we know, in fact, that when God created every one of us, He threw away the mold. There would never be another you. Every one of us are unique and unrepeatable lives. And now DNA studies are showing that that's absolutely true. No two individuals on earth are the same. No two individuals. John Kilmer, the director of the Center for Bioethics, once said this. He says, I have met a lot of people who would like to be cloned, but I have never met anybody who wished they'd been a clone. You see, God never does it that way. God does not clone. That would be absolutely defying God's creativity. Why would he make another person exactly the same as the last one? God is the infinite creator, and every, every person he makes in his image has got a uniqueness stamped upon them. This is a marvelous story. James Houston writes, People are not sticks and stones, nor are they beasts, for they possess immortal souls which give them the preeminent place in their created order. Even in our alienation from God, we bear yet the imprint of our origin and the potential of our future. Oh, this is good news. Before there ever was bad news, there was good news. We were created in the image of God. We were precious in God's sight. We are precious in God's sight. Every human. I love what Alf Bell had on his wall in his bedroom. Alf Bell had the, the sign that said, always remember that every sinner has a future and every saint a past. Much debate has gone on about what's lost and what's left of God's image on humanity. We're not going to get into that too deep. We don't have time, but let me state simply that within the heart of each one of us, I think, is the knowledge that we were created for something more. I believe that intuitively you have that in you, that you were created for something more than what you're already experiencing in life. Ecclesiastes 3.12 says that God has set eternity in our hearts. St. Augustine said our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. And Vance Havner wrote, whatever else is or is not true, we are not what we were intended to be. The image of God is broken. We're not who we were intended to be. And if you're honest with yourself, if you're just brutally honest with yourself for just a moment, you will be able to admit that you don't even live up to your own standard of righteousness and purity and conduct and behavior and so on, much less God's image. That's, that's okay. In fact, that's a good place to begin, is that you're not even living up to your own standard. That's okay. God knows that. The Scriptures teach us that the image of God has been marred, distorted, broken, and that it affects every area of our living. It affects our thinking, our feeling, our choosing, our affections, our attitudes, our motives, our speaking, our behavior, our relationships. There's not one area that the twisting of sin has not affected the way you are. 
and it has resulted in the beauty, the beauty of God's image that is on you to, to be marred. And as a result, your life has din- diminished. Your life has shrunk. Your life is not better because you get to do your own thing. Your life is worse. Your life has shrunk down. It's diminished. God has made you for so much more. And so as we begin this series and this thinking of the image of God, I want to just make a few big points, and I'm going to go pretty quickly, so bear with me. First of all, I want to say that the image of God is universal within the human race. All people bear the stamp of God's image. Secondly, no one is born with a greater or lesser capacity to reflect God's image. We're all born with the capacity equally to reflect God's image. John Kilmer, Kilner, in a book called Dignity and Destiny, writes this. He says, there are no marginal cases of being human. <laughs> I love the way he says it. There are no marginal cases of being human. The image of God, next, is not lost because of the fall or sin. Yes, it's been twisted and marred, but it's not lost. Next, the image of God means that we belong to God. We are not our own. We are accountable to our Creator. Next, we believe that the image of God means that we experience being human most in relationship with God, our Creator. And then it means also that there's a fundamental sanctity of human life that extends beyond any category you could describe, any classification of human. The image of God, the sanctity of human life, goes beyond anyone's ability, agility, intelligence, race, gender, age, any other factor that you could classify people with. The image of God goes beyond that. That, that hugely affects the kind of laws of our land that are being passed and so on. And so the hope of the gospel is that even though this image has been marred and distorted, there's a remnant of it yet exists. And the good news of God's grace and the gospel is that there's a way back to that image. Jesus Christ is that way. And that's the next point I want to move on to quickly. The image of God is fully displayed in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The quote that I have in your notes in that yellow insert uh, comes from Major Ian Thomas. And he said this. He said, for the first time, for the first time since Adam fell into sin, there was on earth a man as God intended man to be. He says that in the Indwelling Life of Christ, his book. And you know, he's talking about none other than Jesus Christ himself. He's talking about Christ. When we look at Jesus Christ, we, we find out everything we need to know about God and everything we need to know about being human. Isn't that amazing? He's the perfect God-man. When we look at Christ, we find out everything we need to know about God and everything we need to know about being human. Not even Adam and Eve, before they sinned, came close to being like Jesus Christ. Hear that. Not even Adam and Eve, before they sinned, were anything close to Jesus. One author puts it this way, no discussion of the Imago Dei is complete without noting that the true image of God is not seen in Adam and Eve prior to their fall, but in Jesus Christ. For God cannot be known 
except in Jesus Christ. That is why when we open the pages of the New Testament and we want to study what the image of God is in the New Testament, we are not directed back to what we might have been if Adam wouldn't have screwed up. We are pointed forward to what we can be in Jesus Christ, who is called the second Adam in the New Testament. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. And so passages like Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. The full glory is seen in Jesus. That's why we make so much of Jesus and it says in the scriptures that, that Paul especially develops this theme that we, we get to partake of the nature of Jesus Christ. You see, there was only one who ever could live the Christian life. You and I cannot live the Christian life. Only Jesus can live the Christ life, the Christian life. And so it's not about imitating Jesus. We're not trying to fake it until we make it. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is not this, this try to imitate what he's like. The Christian life is being transformed, there's that word form again, transformed from the inside out. As we have been made partakers of the divine nature, 2 Peter 1.4, so also Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we are being transformed and glory to glory. Just We keep beholding him and from glory to glory, we keep on being changed. There's two, two critical words there found in Romans chapter 12. In uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not conform. The word conform there is schema in Greek, where we get our word scheme. You're seeing a scheme of me right now, my schema, my, my outward form. Do not conform. It means from the outside in you change. Okay, everybody, next Sunday we're all required to wear black when you come to church. If anybody shows up in black, what are you doing? You're conforming. Inside your heart you're saying, I don't want to wear black. So you conform. Change from the outside in. Schema. God says, do not conform to the pattern of the world. That's not the way God changes Christians. He says instead, be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind daily. What is the word transformation there? Transform? Metamorphosis. Change from the inside out. Changed in essence. Change from being a, a little worm to going into a cocoon to becoming a butterfly. Transformation. Change from the inside out. Change in the essence of your person. That's what Jesus does. Jesus takes his heart and he puts it on your heart. He implants it in your heart. He does the metamorphosis in your heart. And you want to love him. You want to obey him. You want to please him. You don't have to conform. You get to be transformed. And every day that I get up and I don't want to pray, I realize, okay, God, there's some, there's some unfinished business here. Put me back on the potter's wheel. I don't want to just conform in my prayer life. I want to be transformed. I want Jesus praying in me, as me. That's what I want. 
How matchless is the Son of God. How matchless. Think about him. Matchless purity and glory. And yet, on, on another way, in another way, so unimpressive. Somebody wrote about Jesus in a very human perspective. Said, they said this about him. He said he never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a house. He didn't go to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled further than 200 miles from where he was born. Jesus did none of these things that would be associated with greatness, but look at his impact. How likely is it that the birthday of a man viewed as a disgraced and executed criminal would come to mark the year that divides all of history? Jesus. Incredible. When we think about the doctrine of the image of God restored in us weak and lowly vessels, these jars of clay, the good news is that this matchless, supreme Son of God, Jesus, in all his glory and in the very essence of Godhood, he can be imprinted and refashioned in us. That's the good news. I think of the hymn Charles Wesley wrote probably 300 and some years ago. He said, Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble home. Adam's likeness now efface. Stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above reinstate us in thy love. Friends, God is in the business of reshaping your life. Everything that's sin, the devil, the world, circumstances, whatever messed up, God is in the business of reshaping. How does he do it? How does he do that? I read a story about a mechanic who um, was working on a cylinder head of a Harley-Davidson motorcycle. Now I got the attention of a few of you. And um, as he was working on this motorcycle, apparently in the shop that he was working on, a well-known heart surgeon from that city walked into the shop. And the mechanic noticed him. And he called across the shop, Hey, Doc, I got a question. And so the doctor walked over to where the mechanic was, and he said, What's up? And the mechanic stood up and wiped his greasy hands off on his rag, and he said, See this engine here that I'm working on? He said, I pulled it apart. I took its heart out. I took out the valves. I ground them. I fixed and repaired what was inside. I put it all back together. Started up. It's purring like a kitten, just like new. How come is it that, that you and I are doing the same basic work, and yet you get the big bucks and I don't? And the doctor just paused for a moment, and then he leaned in. He leaned into the mechanic's ear, and he whispered, he whispered to him. He said, try doing it with the engine running. <laughs> Good point. That's what God's doing, folks. That's what, he's doing that with you. God's doing that with you. God's changing you, and your engine's running. You're flitting around all of life. You're just on the move. You're doing it. You're living your life. God is not passive. God is not silent. God is transforming you with the engine running. He's taken the disappointments of your life. 
He's taken the hard people in your life. He's taken the failures of your life. He's taken your certain makeup that He designed you to be. He's taken all of the stuff that makes you you. And, and as the engine is running, He's saying, I'm, I'm working with you. Will you be sensitive to my touch? Will you let me break that down? It's, it's kind of got off in the wrong direction. Would you just be okay with that if I just worked with you? I spoke with a man this past week that shared with me the road back to God after drifting away for several years. I felt like I was on holy ground. And as he shared with me, I just had to pause at one point and I said to him, how is it, in the middle of this time, I said, how did you come to view God differently? And what he said next just took me by surprise. Because he said, after thinking for a moment, he said, it's not that I view God differently now than before I wandered away from him. He said, what really, what's different is how I believe he views me. That's so true. Some of you are stumbling tonight, today, I mean, because you already have a thinking in your mind that, that there's no way God can reshape your life. There's no way God can work with you. You're too far gone. Some of you this morning need to hear what that man said to me, that as an image bearer of God broken by sin, the biggest hurdle maybe back to God is you knowing that, that God sees you still as that precious, invaluable, unrepeatable life that he created for a certain purpose. And he wants to get you back on task with that purpose. Think about the prodigal son. He did not have any clue of how the father was going to view him when he returned, did he? was a problem in Jeremiah's time as well. He's called the weeping prophet. One of my life verses is Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you and I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. I just, I had that sense about me, folks. I'm sorry, but from, from an early time in my teens, I just had that sense that God knew me in the womb. God, God knew all about what I was going to be and I'm just trying to follow his path for me. But you know what Jeremiah says in response to that? Jeremiah says this in verse 6 of Jeremiah 1. He says, he says, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak. I'm only a youth. I'm just a young man, God sa Jeremiah said to God. You know what God said in response? He said, do not say I'm only a youth. Don't say that to me. He says, for to all whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am going to send you to deliver them, declares the Lord. Now you can fill in what you want. I'm only a youth, I'm only this, I'm only that, whatever. But you're not seeing how God sees you anymore. You've lost sight of that. Israel had lost sight of it. Israel had lost sight of the fact that they were God's people, loved by God. The actual covenant God had made with Abraham was that they were going to be a light to the nations. They had completely lost sight of that. They didn't think God could see them in any other way than an idolatrous nation. And so one day, Jeremiah wakes up in the morning and God says to him, go down to the potter's house. 
So Jeremiah gets up and he goes down to the potter's house. And in verse 4 of Jeremiah 18, it says, the vessel that he was working on of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. He reworked it. He reworked it into another vessel as seemed good to the potter. Just like we saw Victoria taking a, a lump of clay and reworking it. And then the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah writes, and he says, O house of Israel, you can put your name in there. Can I not do with you as this potter has done? For just like clay in the hands of the potter, so are you in my hand, declares the Lord. Do you see, do you see the point? You, you need to understand how God sees you. You need to understand that, that you're, not, you're not disqualified. You need to understand that God loves you. He wants to reshape you. I'm going to be asking you to come forward for prayer in just a moment as we conclude the service in a few minutes. We're not quite done yet, but I'm just going to tell you, if God the Spirit has been knocking on your heart's door today, there's, there's something maybe you need to come forward for, and there'll be people that'll come forward with you to pray. And I don't know why, but I had this sense a few days ago that I'm supposed to do this. I'm, I'm supposed to ask you to come for prayer. My mom shared with me a story that I'd forgotten this past week. My mom, I dropped her off at the airport. She was visiting friends in Toronto. And she shared with me a story about what happened in the Barcelona Olympics in 1992. You might remember the story when I describe it. That there was a man from Britain, <clears throat> Derek Redmond, running in the 400-meter race when on the third round, I guess, or so around there, he, he tore his hamstring. And he couldn't run anymore. He went down. All the other runners ran by him. <clears throat> and we see, we read that, that uh, we can see the video on YouTube, actually. He got up and he tried to limp along, but he couldn't. He went down again. And all the crowd was just looking upon him with pity. This poor guy. All of a sudden, in the corner of the camera, you see a man break through security and run onto the track. <laughs> and he comes up underneath Derek Redman under his shoulder and he starts to limp along. Last lap. And then he gets across the finish line and the 60,000 fans in Barcelona Stadium erupt into a standing ovation. It was his father. And his father knew how much he had trained to get to Barcelona. And he whispered to his father, he told reporters later, I just want to cross the finish line. You know, God is not up in the stands, folks, looking down at your pitiful run on life. God is not up in the stands looking down at you, judging you for your last sin. God is in the arena. God is on the track. God is in your lane. God is under your arms, lifting you up. God is with you. 
That's the God of the Bible. That's the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the good news this world has to hear. And sometimes what holds us back is just our view of how God views us. You've spent enough time living out what others have said about you. You've spent enough time building your self-image on some pitiful idea of who you are in your performance. You've spent enough time believing the lies of Satan about you. You've spent enough time thinking that you're a loser, a failure, a no-good, a disappointment, a has-been, a too-little-too-late. You've spent enough time doing that Shameful, putting yourself down. God says, why are you doing that to yourself? I love you. Just get back on the potter's wheel and let me make you into something that I've called you to be, I made you to be. Would you do that today? Would you decide today that you're going to let him take control? That you're going to let him put you back on the potter's wheel? Is there somebody here today that for the first time maybe you're going to say yes to God? I mean, really in your heart of hearts, you're going to say yes to God. That no longer is it you trying to shape your life. You're going to say, God, I'm going to yield my life to you. I believe what Jesus Christ can transform me into is way better than anything that I'm making of my life. And I'm I'm going to surrender today. Is that you? And if it's not you, maybe there's, maybe there's just an area of your life and you just say, I, I just have not given that over to God. Amen. You know, folks, whenever, we, whenever I have a sense that God wants me to do something like this, just come to the front of a prayer. I, I just, Kevin and I talk, we always talk, whatever God does is God does. There's no conforming here. I just, we just want real transformation to play, take place. And, and I always say, to, if no one comes forward, that's fine. God's up to something we know. And so let me pray for us as we leave. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the, the way you work. Oh, God, we know you've been present today. We know your Holy Spirit is brooding over this congregation. We know that you're creating and recreating us into the image of Jesus Christ and And Lord, we only see glimpses of what what it's looking like when we get together. But oh, Father, we say to you today, Father, have your way, have your way, and make us more and more into the image of Jesus and fill this world with the glory of Christ seen in the church. Lord, have your way with each one of us and bless each person that's been here. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Go in peace. God bless you.